Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, February 14th, 2019, the So Many Democrats edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics, the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. And I'm joined as usual uh, by my co-host Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Sun shining, Patriots won the Super Bowl, and we're not out of Europe yet, so you can't complain. Yes, it is. On the day of recording, it's Valentine's Day, everybody. So this is going to be one of those episodes where Scott and I get together for a, a cozy bilateral podcast about American politics, surrounded by candles and rose petals, uh, with a romantic dinner for two being prepared for delivery as soon as we wrap up. Uh, hello to Mrs. Scott. I hope you don't mind me borrowing him from you uh, for the, uh, the duration of the day. Um, our topic this time is the contest for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination in 2020. Now that we're more than halfway through Donald Trump's first term as president, uh, with the 2018 midterm congressional elections now behind us, it's time for the Democrats to start thinking in earnest about who they want to deploy as their candidate to ensure that Trump's first term is his only one. Um, and it's shaping up to be a veritable battle royal, uh, with the absence of any prohibitive favorite, meaning lots and lots and lots of Democrats uh, fancy themselves for the job. So far, and you will have to bear with us here, listeners. Believe it or not, I have slightly edited this list down, um, but just to make sure we have all the, uh, all the nods and names duly acknowledged, so far definitely declared as running for the Democratic nomination, uh, we have Elizabeth Warren, Senator for Massachusetts, Kamala Harris, the Senator for California, Cory Booker, Senator for New Jersey, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, uh, Amy Klobuchar uh, from Minnesota, Julian Castro, who's a former San Antonio mayor and uh, cabinet member, Secretary for the Housing and Urban Development Department, Tulsi Gabbard, a congresswoman from Hawaii, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Indiana, uh, who, despite that relatively low-profile job, managed to get himself quite a bit of media coverage, and one or two other small fry that we need not mention, are still circling the runway, uh, but with lots of buzz suggesting they will run, are some other high-profile names, including Joe Biden, the former vice president uh, under Barack Obama and long-term senator uh, from uh, Delaware, Bernie Sanders, who I'm sure many of our listeners will have, uh, will have come across before, who was the senator for Vermont, still is indeed the recently re-elected senator for Vermont, uh, but more prominently the second place uh, finisher in the Democratic primaries back in 2016. Beto O'Rourke, the Robert Kennedy-esque shooting star from Texas, a congressman from down there, but who was a runner-up in the in the Senate contest last time, did better than Democrats ordinary, ordinarily would. Sherrod Brown, uh, the senator from Ohio, and some governors. Let's not forget the governors, Scott. Uh, Jay Inslee from Washington State, John Hickenlooper from Colorado, Terry McAuliffe, good grief. <laughs> I don't want to like, use up our powder early, but Goodness me, Terry McAuliffe, apparently, former governor of Virginia, believes that he has a chance of being the nominee. And hovering in the background uh, is one billionaire non-Democrat who may jump in, apparently, to try and uh, steal the title, Michael Bloomberg, former New York mayor, and another uh, who's threatening a third-party run, Starbucks founder Howard Schultz. And we can uh, save up a shooing, especially for him, as we proceed. So my goodness gracious me, that that is a lot of Democrats, Scott. That is is a lot of Democrats. 
Democrats. Um, but I'm going to resist temptation to ask, are there any Democrats in America who are not running for president? And instead ask the slightly milder question, what, why is the field so competitive this time? Because they're, they're, sure they're sure as heck were not so many Democrats in the running uh, in any of the, the last couple of rounds. Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of all you professional wrestling fans out there, and I hope there are a lot of them listening to us, something called uh, uh, well, the Royal Rumble, right, where you get 30 of them one by one coming into the ring, and then they each try to throw each other out. And the whole thing's scripted for television, and the whole thing is a great deal of fun, but at the end it's just chaos. Now, what's happening this time around? Well, first of all, of course, is, is that on the Republican side, or I guess the man who's been in the ring is Donald Trump, and once you've got someone who on his best days approaches the term batshit crazy and when he's on his very bad days has everything in turmoil, that's an opportunity. Uh, it does look like, contrary to what I expected, he'll serve out his first term. But that means... He's more than halfway there, which like, mm. it, feels, it feels almost... Un- this is a presidency that seemed unimaginable to begin with. There's mm. now more of it behind us than there may be ahead. Uh, yeah. Which, which it feels it, weird how much we've normalized it. Exactly. And so if... You know, it goes on through the summer. Even Robert Mueller, the special counsel, I don't think can take him down for political reasons, which means the Republicans are locked in. I mean, Mm. at this point, it doesn't look like someone's going to come out if Trump is still in office and challenged. And what you've got is the run against this guy who has alienated part of the Republican Party, who does have his supposed base, but who probably there's real question marks about how much he can appeal to independents as well as Democrats. Yeah, and his polling at its best, is in the low 40s. Yeah. Uh, comfortably more than 50% of Americans now routinely tell pollsters they disapprove of Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, and I think more than 50% say they would not vote for him under any circumstances at this point. So he's more beatable, uh, I think, at least if the Democrats yeah. can unite their own vote, uh, than the average incumbent president would tend to appear at this point. Yeah, I, I, I just add to that that In one of the recent polls that was conducted during the middle of the government shutdown, when Trump was perhaps at his lowest point, there was many Republicans who said they would support an alternative candidate who said they would support Trump. So that tells you that this supposed base is is still does not encompass our party. But that's on one side. What interests me is what's on the other side. And that is you really, I think, are getting a shakeup of the Democratic Party in part because of the external factor of Trump, because Trump's just shaking up politics, because the idea of established party politics, and you came in and perhaps you went to the center, slightly to the left of center, all the rules kind of go out the window. And then within the party, there's this generational shift. And this shift, I think, in terms of a gender shift, in terms of towards people of color, if you just look at the influx, not just this past November, although it was really marked, but in the past few congressional elections, and look at the 30s, the 40s, now we get the millennials who are coming into the frame. And they are coming in rather than fitting into the party and working off party script, sometimes getting a a lot of play in terms of their ideas. Shock horror, whether it be about climate change, whether it be about gun control, whether it be about the economy. And just as Trump has introduced ideas that would have been beyond the frame of Republican, I think, politics only a few years ago, Some of these ideas, such as Medicare for all, although that has a lot to do with Bernie Sanders as Mm -hmm. the elder generation, but some of the younger generation picking that up, some of them talking about a real need to get meaningful federal gun control legislation, some of them talking about 
heaven for help us taxing the very wealthy. That's something the Democrats have gone away from in the previous generation. Now, how much will those ideas come into play next year during the presidential election, which is a way of saying, I don't think you can separate the horse race of individuals from the way that issues are negotiated. And that's Mm -hmm. going to be the interesting dynamic that we haven't had in the past few uh, Democratic contests. Yeah, because it's partly the very high population of this primary contest. Uh, You've got to think a reaction to last time where – Although it might, well, you know, there wasn't a president rerunning for office or anything. It was theoretically an open nomination. But Hillary Clinton, this extremely experienced, long-serving national party figure, decided that she was running pretty early, uh, did an awful lot of work to deter other people from running by, by sending the strong message that she had she had the support of senior colleagues locked up. Anyone who ran against her was going to lose and then be scorned forevermore uh, as, as, as a traitor to her cause if, if and when she, she was elected. And very successfully, pretty much with the with the exception of Bernie Sanders and, and Martin O'Malley, who were the two other uh, remember him, everybody, uh, who were the two other candidates that actually that, that that did have a serious run. She managed to clear the field of a lot of people who might have considered a run. And even though she wasn't a particularly beloved figure within the Democratic Party, and even though many people in the Democratic Party also had their reservations about her electability, they were like, ah, she's got a lot of baggage, she's not especially charismatic as a speaker, like, I don't know if this is the best we can do on political grounds as, as well as on, on on grounds of policy substance. They were all persuaded one way or another, look, she's definitely going to win the nomination, she's probably going to win the presidency, so everybody just, like, you know, pipe down and this is how it's going to be, so get on the team or 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 else and this time round i think having been burned by the experience of hearing and believing a narrative of inevitability about a candidate about whom they had many reservations privately, uh, no one this time round is going to... If, if someone is told, you know, you, you know, it's not your time or you have too many liabilities or, you know, someone else is, is, is ahead of you, uh, so, you know, rein in your ambitions and support the inevitable candidate, they're just going to laugh at that now because they don't think that they don't think that the the lesson of last time round sustains the idea that people shouldn't have a go and of course Donald Trump who any rational analysis would have told you uh, in 2015 had no chance whatsoever of winning the Republican nomination still less the presidency managed to do both of those things mm-hmm. so telling people that they you know that it's simply unrealistic for them to aspire to these things even despite a lack of experience perhaps also doesn't ring true yeah i and i mean i'd add to that that For example, you could have looked at a Joe Biden as the former vice president. Had Biden come in early or signaled early, he would run. He was one of the ones who was scared away last time, in fact. One of the ones who I think he wishes he ran in 2016. And part of why he's, I think, probably going to run now is because he's kicking himself that he didn't do it when he might have had a better chance. But it's a missed time thing. I think it's a missed time because, you know, Biden should have come in earlier to try to close off the field. But also, Biden's a white guy. And you're not going to be talking about this in a little bit more detail, but the fact is, is that I, this whole thing where I'm talking about the Democratic Party shifting is in part, I think, because of issues that you don't just simply take the center ground that the Democratic machine comes up with and run on that. But second, it is this is not an old white guy party. 
And that applies, therefore, not only from the center of the party, I think that applies to Sanders from the progressive side, mm-hmm. that if he had come in and said, well, you know, I ran this insurgent campaign in 2016, now let's make my campaign the default one. And what happened is, is that a number of candidates who we'll talk about, who are, quote, more from that progressive side of it, mm-hmm. weren't going to just simply play follow the leader. What I find interesting beyond the individuals does come back to this, though, and that is there's no definition here of, as it were, the ground of the contest. And I think if you go back, this is probably the biggest shift since 92. And in 1992, you all remember a guy named Bill Clinton, the one who was successful of the two to get the presidency. That was, of course, where the center of the Democratic Party sort of regained ground from the idea they'd gone too far to the left. They'd been hammered in the 1988 election. And ever since 92, they really had stuck to that central ground. Even Obama is, Obama's more of a pragmatist. Obama's not as coming out of that progressive line. Mm -hmm. He was the guy that could come in and not be George Bush, not get into a disastrous war and get health care through, which is not to be underestimated, but it does mean the type of candidates we see are even different from the surprise package that he presented in 2008. Yeah, I mean, I think it it seems like Barack Obama is likely to be remembered in some ways as a kind of transitional midpoint figure in the Democratic Party, depending on how things go, of course, because he was uh, solidly progressive and overt about that compared to 1992, but perhaps less so than than it would seem uh, things things are going to be in the in the imminent future. So let's talk a little bit about the the bases upon which these many, many candidates are going to be competing with one another to secure the nomination of the Democratic Party. Um, and there's a few different lanes here. You've, you've alluded to some of them, but let me set them out for the listeners, and then we can maybe walk, work through some of them. One is the idea of a left-right policy spectrum, that the Democratic Party is the left-leaning of the two main parties. Uh, but as you've just said, for the last 25 to 30 years, uh, it's been a pretty moderate representation of the left, especially by comparison with you know, the average, say, European labor or, or, or socialist party. However, there's been a, a, a big uptick partly driving and partly driven by Bernie Sanders' uh, surprisingly strong performance in 2016 primaries as an overtly uh, socialist candidate, a guy who would not historically, he doesn't even identify himself with the Democratic Party officially uh, because he's uh, so left-wing, but he he sought their nomination and caucuses with them in, in the Senate. That has led a lot of people to believe that there is more appetite than they had previously thought there was in the electorate for a full-blooded, what they would call progressive, uh, what its most extreme proponents would call socialist, but basically they mean social democratic by that policy agenda. So, uh, you know, uh, wealth redistribution through high taxes on a much grander scale than has previously been thought politically possible, stronger measures on climate change, a much more full-throated defense of women's women's rights and women's equality, racial issues and racial equality, especially in the sphere of criminal justice, gun control sometimes comes up. So a a more comprehensive and direct progressive agenda uh, has been pushed by uh, a solid constituency of the democratic base. So one thing that candidates are going to be competing over is the question of, is the is the best route to the nomination and then the best route to the Democratic Party's uh, victory in the presidential general election going to be to lean into that, mm-hmm. to say, OK, if conservatives are going to set moderation aside and run on hardline right wing populist stuff, our counterpoint to that ought to be uh, to run on uh, hard, uh, firm, clear, direct populist uh, uh, left wing 
analog. And you know, in and around that lane, you can see people like Bernie Sanders himself, of course, running again. You can see Elizabeth Warren, who's well known for taking on the banking industry mm -hmm. and who has some, some pretty radical proposals for uh, uh, changes to economic regulation. Uh, Kamala Harris, who has a tough history as a prosecutor back in California politics, but comes from a liberal state, is proposing some big uh, uh, reforms to health care, wealth redistribution, etc. Um, or, 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 is the way for the Democratic Party to win the election to keep all of the people who would favor all of that stuff in an ideal world voting for the Democratic Party because they don't want Donald Trump, but to try and win over the center ground by something a little bit more like the traditional Democratic argument that says, look, America's great. We don't need to revolutionarily change America, but we just need somewhat more liberal uh, liberal policies with regard to uh, the, working, the working poor, etc. And those candidates haven't quite jumped in yet, but when Joe Biden gets in, if Beto O'Rourke gets in, if some of those governors like like Hickenlooper uh, uh, get involved, that's the argument they're going to be trying to make, that the, the road to victory lies through the center and something more like uh, Obama's or perhaps even Bill Clinton's Democratic agenda. I'd, let me say, so let me throw this out here and see if we can really put a spanner in the works. I don't think this is going to be a left-right issue. And that's going to sound really strange the way that media frames this, the way that they tend to try to immediately put people in their lanes. I think this is going to be a competence election. And by that I mean if you had had a relatively competent president, if you'd had someone that had played by the rules in the last few years, I think you're right. Then you come back and are the Democrats left, right, et cetera. Almost every Democratic candidate can come in now and say, we've got to fix things, which was Elizabeth Warren's mantra for her launch. And therefore, when they say fix things, they don't have to come in and say, oh, I'm being a socialist on health care or I'm being even a progressive regarding gun control. What they come in and say is we've got a system that needs changes to be able to deliver education or to be able to deliver uh, social provision. And if that means raising taxes to an extent, I don't think they'll say 70% marginal like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has done. Right. Oh, this is the, the, the recently arrived uh, uh, 28. Is she still 28? Or, uh, she uh, may be close to 30 28 now. when she was elected, I think, um, a congresswoman from Queens yep. in New York yep. who uh, has been a rather bold uh, – Overton window widener when it comes to policy issues who, who said that the United States should return to having a 70% top marginal rate on income tax. And that's become one of the reference points in this discussion of whether or not people are on the progressive or the moderate yep. side of the, uh, the policy debate. Yeah. In other words, I think you're going to see people like Cortez being the lightning rods to, you know, to really anger the right wing, to galvanize media attention. Whereas you see the presidential candidates working much more on the ground of, look, Here's the pragmatic way. So when, for example, and I think Kamala Harris has marked it out already because she's adopted the Sanders call of Medicare for all, which, effect, which is, in effect, universal health care. Mm. Now, even to be able to propose universal health care as a candidate in the U.S. is a huge shift from where we were a generation ago and arguably even a decade ago when Obama was in office. The question will not be, do we not want, do we think universal health care is evil, that it's part of the communist regimes like in the UK or in Canada? It's going to be, can you afford to deliver universal health care? Mm. And so the question very quickly is going to become, are you talking about a public-only system? Or are you talking about a public system which still allows for private care in it? And I actually think that's a positive thing, first of all, in terms of the discussion. 
Secondly, if it goes that way that I think it will, that's a positive thing for the Democrats mm. because very clearly – and this is the reason why I kick back against that left-right thing. What Trump's going to try to do in his inner circle is very much immediately frame this as being this hard-left issue mm-hmm. versus his sensible alternative, which is why in the campaign rally in Texas this past week, he started talking about the evils of socialism. Now, Donald Trump, one, doesn't know what socialism is. Two, a lot of his base doesn't know what socialism is. But three, if this election is defined as socialism or America, mm. then the Democrats are on a losing wicket. Yeah, because there's at the moment there's a, a, a kind of bidding war taking place within the, this field of candidates to signal that they are on one side or other of this of this debate. Those who see themselves as potentially running in the progressive lane, if you will, having seen Bernie Sanders get the portion of the vote that he got last time, knowing that potentially he's going to run again, uh, knowing that uh, there is a constituency within the Democratic activist base to first of all support that very vocally and also like shower in flames online candidates who seem like they are not on board for what they see as the one true good way. Um, candidates have been trying to signal that they are also, with some variation to distinguish themselves as individuals, uh, on board basically for that. So you have Medicare for all or or other kinds of radical health care reform to widen provision. A bunch of different versions of it have been proposed. You've got sponsors and co-sponsors among the candidates for it from among the ones who are in the Senate. You've got a variety of other policy proposals around housing, around poverty relief and intervention, etc. And can, these candidates are all signaling that that they, they would or would not do things in, in the kind of redistributive space. And it seems like the, the calculation there is that during the primaries, there is going to be an enormous gravitational pull to the left coming from the Sanders and Sanders adjacent activist base. And if you want to be in that lane, you need to signal support for that kind of stuff. But there is also an eye on the general election when if you get past the primary – some of that stuff is probably going to be a lot less helpful to you, but some of those arguments about being competent and having an eye on the financial solvency of the country and all of that is good. And the, I suppose the, the unknown as yet is how many people in the Democratic primary voting electorate are going to be all in for the Sandersite agenda and unwilling to vote for anyone who doesn't endorse it versus what proportion of them just really, really, really want to see Donald Trump beaten and will be thinking ahead to think, well, I would like a candidate who you know, broadly shares my values but is not going to commit to stuff that's toxic to the, to the wider electorate. So will they, will they go for someone who hedges on those issues because they know that's basically in their interest to win? But again, to really... Uh, kick against the pricks here. Um, I don't think, I, I think there's a shift here. And I think the reason why there's a shift here is you can argue for universal health care now and not position as being just simply a Sanders leftist because a lot of people who are suffering now because of the problems in the system, in part because of Trump's attempt to unravel Obamacare, are, are not left Democratic voters. They're just people across the political spectrum. And so you can make the appeal for universal health care, and I think you can go into the Midwest. You can go into other areas, especially Republican areas, and say, look, you guys are feeling this now. I think on climate change, for example, you perhaps cannot go into a coal mining area like West Virginia 
or Kentucky, but I think in many areas of the U.S., you can get in and say, look, I'm not looking here to be a left-wing environmentalist. I'm saying if we don't take action on climate change, everyone's going to suffer in the States. Now, this may be kind of projecting the type of candidate I want to come out of it, but I do think that space is there Mm. to break that left-right approach. I think even in 2016, if Sanders had made it past Hillary Clinton, socialist, left-wing, progressive, and, and hammer, 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 I think someone who comes out on the issues that Sanders embraces doesn't necessarily get marked out as left or mm. can't avoid being marked out as being on the, uh, let's say, on the fringe of any movement. Yeah, although it it feels like at least some of the people who are proposing these these kinds of reforms, I feel like Elizabeth Warren probably would be doing some version of what she's doing anyway, because mm-hmm. you know she was uh, she was into this stuff before. But people like Kamala Harris, people like Cory Booker, strike me as people who, in a in a different universe where the twenty sixteen election never happened, I can imagine perfectly plausibly proposing a much more moderate program, but they know they need to get around Bernie Sanders to, one way or another to ensure this nomination goes to them. That involves a kind of signaling that they are on board for something that simultaneously looks like Bernie's agenda and speaks to its concerns, but that is distinctive in the, some way that means that you should consider them to be good enough for that agenda to be satisfied, but not simply the same thing as voting for him, because if that's the case, why not just do that? I, I would agree with that, that there's there's obviously a little bit of a look there and a, and a bit of maneuvering that takes place. It's especially transparent in Cory Booker's case, we ought to say, because he you know has a very long history of taking big money from Wall Street and from big pharmaceutical companies, and perhaps perceiving that as a vulnerability on his part, uh, has decided to like, throw himself behind this big uh, uh, policy proposal to set up uh, wealth accounts for for young kids that would grow up into quite large endowments that they can pick up when they're 18 that he's selling as a way of bridging the racial poverty gap. Yeah, I I think Booker's going to have problems. And I think Booker's going to have problems precisely because, in a sense, let's take that issue, which is that of income inequality, the question of deprivation, the wealth problem. I think there he's trying to make an obvious straddle in Wall Street. What's interesting is what he is coming up against, where I think, and this brings me back to my question of pragmatism, it's not as much that Elizabeth Warren is on the left or is progressive, it's that Warren staked out that position, uh, as she did well before 2016, which is on taking on Wall Street, on taking on the bankers, saying we need fundamental reform. Now, in fact, there's been a rollback of reform in the United States in the past Mm -hmm. few years to deregulate, to reopen markets. I think that's a really interesting question that gets us beyond left-right, which is how much do the ideas that Warren have regarding banks and financial reform, how much do they actually have traction with the general public? Mm. How much are they simply too complex to have traction? And how much of that can get caricatured or Mm. face lobby money, which is you don't want this dangerous leftist coming out there. So I think Warren's got a slightly – Warren and Booker are almost like mirror, mirror images of each other. On that whole question of Wall Street and of finance, well, she seems America. like yeah. I mean, well, I mean, she seems like someone who has. Uh, I mean, she's not anti-capitalist in the no. broadest sense, but she is extremely critical of particular industries that might be seen to have manipulated capitalism in destructive ways to their advantage. And she's got to somehow convince enough people that she's not an insane leftist to stand a chance of winning. Cory Booker is someone who, you know, one suspects everyone in those industries would be delighted to see get the yeah. nomination, but he needs to sell himself as not such a craven sellout to them uh, that, that he would be capable of doing some good business for the Democratic Party. 
party. So they're kind of their their weakness is the uh, the mirror image of of one another's, as it were. They're trying to sell themselves as being a, a a little bit open to the thing that they're not. Which which raises the question because now we're getting beyond left right to talk about some fundamentals here, and that is. There's this paradox, especially if you're in the Democratic Party, that you know that the American political system is driven by moneyed interest. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about big pharma as well. We can mention that. But in this case, you know that these are moneyed interest, which are tied to New York, which are tied to the capital markets, the investment markets. At the same time, you don't want to declare yourself as working for those guys. No. Now, that sets up a problem for any candidate in one, how do you avoid identification with them? But two, how do you avoid possibly pissing them off. Now, Warren's basically staked herself out because she's an honest politician in my She's going to stake her ground if you vote for her, fine. If not, so if Wall Street comes after her, fair enough. I mean, her brand is, I am the person who comes breathing fire right for Wall Street. So she, you know, she she can't uh, really win from watering that down too much. Uh, No, and she persists. That's the other thing. Yes. And she persists, you know, which is a reference on the Senate floor when she wouldn't be shut up. That, I think, marks out to where we can then talk about the Kamala Harris, Kirsten uh, Gillibrand, where you talk about Amy Klobuchar, where they come in. Mm -hmm. If this becomes an issue regarding financial, tax matters, investment matters, stock market, where do they position on that? Or do they stay away from that issue, Mm -hmm. position it more on social issues, such as gun control? And here, let me just add something else to you. Let me throw this into the mix. There's an interesting dynamic as well here that hasn't been present in in other campaigns. And it's what is happening in the House of Representatives. And that is perhaps the arch pragmatist of all, Nancy Pelosi, is actually shaking things up, but is doing from a standpoint where she's not running for president. So the House of Representatives has already signaled they want legislation for electoral reform. They have just passed the first sweeping legislation regarding gun control, at least sweeping in relative terms which is for federal background checks mm-hmm. to purchase weapons. We pass it in the House, to be clear. In the House. So it's not actually going to become legislation, but it's a signal of Democratic Party priority. Exactly. And there is an opportunity. There's a question for candidates here as much as do they just ride with what Pelosi is driving through and what the congressional Democrats are riding through mm. and say this is the way that we want to go. We want to work with this, which takes us beyond that old question of machine versus outsider because – this isn't exactly machine politics. This is actually that question of competent or functional politics. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, I mean, like I, this part of the agenda that's been put forward by the uh, the new regime in the Democratic House is what once upon a time, I guess, would have been called progressive good governance, as in like progressive era, early 20th century yeah. stuff about voting rights, the sound running of elections, the regulation of money coming into and out of election campaigns, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to uh, turn to another dimension here because we talked about the, uh, the progressive versus uh, uh, centrist lane, as it mm-hmm. were, on policy with uh, a little few complications to that that I think you've, mm-hmm. you've very appropriately flagged up. But a parallel issue track alongside that is going to be, or maybe a couple of them, it's going to be identity oriented. Now, I don't you know, mean to throw the word identity politics around on Julie, because that's not, that's, I, I don't mean candidates who are solely seeking to win the nomination by saying that progressive policy ideas don't matter. But there are some candidates in this campaign who belong to particular groups that are not 
uh, overrepresented in the history of American electoral politics and for whom it would potentially be a selling point that their victory would, would mean something in that regard. Particularly, I'm thinking here that uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Cory Booker are African-American. Uh, 27% of the Democratic primary electorate in, in 2016 mm-hmm. was African-American. So it's a very substantial uh, part of this particular vote contest. And they will, as well as trying to position themselves in issue terms, I don't doubt have a bit of a contest between themselves to see can uh, one of them lock up the African-American vote as the African-American candidate? Uh, Because if, if there are a lot of people in this primary and you can get something resembling a quarter of the vote to come to you and stay behind you, that's going to give you staying power. The other dimension here is is sex and gender. Um, Hillary Clinton was the uh, the breakthrough female political candidate last time, but she didn't win. The dynamics by which she didn't win, which many saw as being absolutely uh, saturated with misogyny, and uh, Donald Trump is considered by many uh, women, never mind of the progressive left, but of, of the center, as like, absolutely despicable in like both his views on 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 women and gender, and also his his personal behavior. Um, that has led to a real surge of female uh, participation in politics in the Democratic Party. Like fifty-seven percent of the Democratic primary electorate last time round in twenty sixteen was female. Uh, I would venture to say it may be an even higher proportion this time round. The 28 midterms led to, 2018 midterms led to a, a, a huge increase in the number of female Democratic candidates and uh, female candidates being successful and, be, and being elected. So those candidates uh, who, who are female, and there's been a very impressive uptick in, in that proportion this time round, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, I guess, maybe uh, Amy Klobuchar. These candidates will all have one eye on the idea that the Democratic Party electorate in large part may want to put a woman up in this election, uh, which is not to say that they they want someone who is obsessed with the question of gender itself, but who represents by virtue of their being selected as the candidate a kind of a blow for the idea that women have a, a central role to play in, in the Democratic Party and the future of, of American elected office. So there's a kind of um, th- there's, a, there's a contest about policies that's going to go on and political leaning that's going to go on. But there's also going to be a contest to benefit from the idea that the Democratic Party is going to be thinking about representation and the identity uh, uh, implications of who they nominate this time round, whether it's someone who's a woman or someone who's from an ethnic minority or both. Uh, And that uh, kind of involves one standoff between the old white dudes or maybe the young white dudes uh, who once upon a time would have been the runaway favorites for these nominations and those candidates who have one or more of the claims uh, to make to representing, to actually embodying change as opposed to just being in favor of progressive stuff. Yeah, I I find it really interesting that only a couple of years ago in the aftermath of the Trump victory and the shock, a lot of people were saying that the Democratic Party had been done in by diversity, uh, not just identity politics, but the idea that because it was trying to appeal to African-American voters or Hispanic Americans or appealing to women, that it had lost sight of effectively, the white vote. Uh, Now here we are, and we're getting into the midst of the primary, and we're actually going back to, no, actually, this is a question of an embrace of diversity, which is taking place. How it plays out in the general election, we can talk about later. But at this point, let me add a couple of overlays on that, because, first of all, the very fact that we could go into this and not start off with the question, will this be the first woman 
president of the United States, let alone mm. will this be the first African-American woman who's president of the United States, shows how much there has been a shift in politics in the last few years. We're now not talking whether or not it's possible. We're talking about the dynamics around here. And I think, if you forgive me for riffing off of this, but there was, a, there was an image at Donald Trump's belated State of the Union last week where when he started to talk about how much women have progressed under his watch, and rather than going along and supporting his ironic take on this, those hundred women uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives, almost all white clad, stood up and they applauded and they danced and they cheered. And now the cameras were focused on them. This is something which isn't just gender tokenism or uh, race tokenism. This is a question of a very diverse electorate and how you reach out to them. And the reason why I say that is, if someone runs just simply on the idea of, well, I'm the woman that can represent women in this party, or let's say Cory Booker's case, I'm the African-American man that can represent African-Americans, I think that's not going to play, especially when you put the overlay of geography under this, which is the way that women vote, the way that people of color vote. The way that young people vote is different if you're in the South, in the Midwest, uh, rather than on the coast. And also, I come back to the age factor that what is very striking is not just whether someone is African-American, Hispanic-American, in the case of Julian uh, Castro. Uh, it is the fact that these are candidates who are posing a very different look to mm. even a Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think we will say early on when they've been playing horse race politics how this plays out in Iowa. When you're talking about a Midwest constituency, a largely white constituency. Yeah, because that's going to be interesting because, I mean, the first two primary votes, well, caucuses in the first mm -hmm. case, primary contest in the second, uh, are Iowa and New Hampshire yeah. in very early 2020. And notoriously, those are both super white states. Yeah. Um, and that has historically been seen to affect who, who gets traction. So, for example, there's talk of Kamala Harris basically relying on, first of all, not competing particularly seriously there and competing in South Carolina, where there is a greater African-American mm. electorate, and also relying on the fact that the California primary will be somewhat earlier than usual this time round. So um, there's a kind of uh, a hurdle structurally to overcome at least a perceived effect on mm. winnowing the candidate base that the running order of the primaries has had in the past. See, but I think that's a real danger. I think that's a real danger when you look at it in that way, uh, especially given the fact that we still got a long road before the first caucus next January. And I'll say that first of all to make a general point. That is, I think the candidate who's successful is the one who brings up, who inspires that general mood that things are changing across America because America's changing, but then can match that to a specific appeal, which goes beyond America is changing to look at what the issues are in a state, which is in Iowa or in New Hampshire. And I say that for a particular reason beyond that general point, which is when you talk about going into South Carolina, Remember that many African-Americans back in 2016 supported Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Now, there are reasons we can go into why that. A lot of it has to do with how Bill Clinton was thought about within the African-American or minority communities. But the idea you can simply go in and draw an African-American vote because you're African-American or draw mm -hmm. a women, uh, women's vote because you're a woman, that doesn't hold. There's a lot that comes into play here. And again, I bring it back to the fact that beyond identity here, there's going to have to be a resonant which is on certain issues that appeal to those groups hmm. and to identify them. Uh, 
because it, it's going to be quite fraught in, in in some ways, I think, because uh, if Joe Biden comes in or um, I think even more starkly, you, you can see it in the way that Sherrod Brown from Ohio, who's unimpeachably progressive in some economic regards, um, is, is positioning himself. Their pitch is basically going to be at least tacitly, I think, a couple of things. One is going to be, I think the Democratic Party has a better chance of winning if it focuses on these bread and butter issues of um, old-time liberal religion and we don't get caught up in these dumb culture wars arguments about race and identity and basically the the argument that identity politics hurts the Democratic Party. We need to get rid of it. Let's see. We would have won in 2016. We will win in the future if we focus uh, you know, on, on that economic agenda that kind of that they would claim addresses but doesn't talk about as much those kinds of things and then also the subtext to that will be and by the way uh, if anyone happens to notice while I'm saying this that I'm a middle-aged or old white guy who will not alienate that potentially floating voter who is discomforted on some inarticulate level by the the physical or social differences of, of candidates who, who are not racist as such, but who for whatever reason never seem to feel quite comfortable voting for a black candidate and who are not misogynist necessarily, but who for whatever reason always seem to find a way to rationalize not voting for a female candidate. Um, they, they can make the, the implied argument that if you really want Donald Trump gone and you want a progressive agenda in the White House, isn't it safer to put someone who looks just like all the previous people who successfully won elections for Democrats in the past up? And like the fact that they're going to be kind of making the argument that we should not do identity politics and making the argument that it's safer to put up the white guy while never under any circumstances explicitly saying that because it sounds too bad, at the same time as competing against these more diverse candidates, uh, it's going to create a kind of, um, uh, as I said, a fraught environment in which an, un an unspoken argument about electability calculations tightly bound up with questions of identity politics is going to unfold because those identity candidates, uh, as, as they would be portrayed by, uh, um, by someone like Sherrod Brown, are not going to want to call that out and start a big argument about being dog whistled at as, as, as the black candidate or as the woman, because that's going to turn even more attention on their on, on their status as that. So it's going to be a hidden argument, but a very real one, I think, and one that could potentially uh, be quite poisonous. Let me let me really shake things up. If this election, whether you talk about the primaries or in the general election, if this election becomes about identity politics, then it will be a further marker of the downward slide of the U.S., especially in the past few years under Trump. But let me explain that to be really provocative. And that is the real identity politics, which is in play here, is not an identity politics of candidates who embrace being women or embrace being African-American or embrace being Hispanic-American. The real identity politics is the framing that takes place that tries to peg that is what's happening. In other words, what you saw in 2016, and what you even saw with Elizabeth Warren in the last couple of weeks after she announced, was to immediately play identity politics, not from Elizabeth Warren doing this, mm. but from people marking her out as a woman mm. and whether she was an electable woman. Uh, to an extent, 
when you have, if you mark out a Kamala Harris, you mark out a Cory Booker to say, are they an electable African-American? Where are they on African-American issues? That's actually the game which is going to be played by opponents of those candidates. In other mm-hmm. words, what I'm telling you is, is that what marked out identity politics in 2016 was an identity politics which was quite skillfully exploited by Donald Trump and his mm-hmm. inner circle. And I know, usually I don't call Donald Trump skillful, but at least those around him played identity politics, which was effectively a white identity politics. Now, right. what happens if Joe Biden comes in? What happens if a Sherrod Brown comes in? Here I come back to the fact is elections aren't only about candidates, it's about their teams and about their groups around them. If Biden, and I think Biden's the one to really look at here, and to an extent Sanders, if they come in, you hope they come in with teams that don't just simply mark them out as, oh, here are the old white dudes who are coming in to tell everyone what to do. Mm-hmm. So the team around Biden, can they reach out to younger voters? Can they reach out to voters who are outside that old Democratic Party as you were, outside the old unions, the old labor confederations, and really appeal to that changing Democratic Party? I think if Biden can pull that off, then possibly. But I think gut instinct, mm. party's beyond Biden now. Yeah. So, I mean, because, like, I mean, across the range of these issues, like, we know that Donald Trump is going to come out swinging, like, tapping into pure, unadulterated white fragility and fear and, yeah. uh, uh, and generational uh, terror and hysteria to basically say that uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, they are someone who is frighteningly different and in favor of irresponsibly left wing stuff. Um, and so, you know the the argument of some democratic candidates who want to plow this this uh, centrist policy lane who are also ma- uh, men who are also white is going to be to say well given that you know that Donald Trump is going to attack whoever the candidate is in that way if your eye is on electability is it not safer to put me up and Finding a way to say that in the democratic primary context without making yourself look like you're endorsing and associating yourself with the kinds of political forces that Democrats increasingly just will not tolerate on the reactionary right is a really difficult line to walk. And if they if if they do it right, then there's going to be potentially a kind of disillusioned portion of the Democratic electorate who feel like, well, we wanted someone who was different, favored different things, was different themselves. Now we've got more of uh, more of the same. And if they do it wrong, then they could go down in flames in this primary, uh, remembered as someone who, you know, tried to implicitly and ineptly uh, play the, the, the centrist and the, the white identity card to ill effect. Let me give you an example to try to do this in practical terms. Because you're saying, how can you come from the center, if, you, you know, if you're a centrist, but actually try to embrace the Democratic Party and embrace decency and competency. When Elizabeth Warren did her formal launch, listeners may know that Donald Trump responded to that with a tweet, which was to call her Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. And then talk about how he quite fancied seeing her on the campaign, all capital letters, trail, mm-hmm. which some people I think rightly associated with a reference to the Trail of Tears. I mean, I've seen it reported as Donald Trump appeared to make a joke about the trail. I mean, I have no other way of interpreting exactly. that. It's, it's one of those things where people have been rather prissy about just straight up saying what he clearly meant, which is, you know, uh, 
Native American suffering is funny to me, or at least I'm sufficiently unconcerned with the horrors of it yeah. that if I can take a dig at a liberal rival for uh, yeah. for, for, for her you know past foolishness in claiming to be of Native American heritage, then you know uh, any collateral damage I may do in terms of offending people is really neither here nor there, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. So, if you're a Joe Biden, if you're Sherrod Brown, if you're someone else, if, if you're any candidate. The play here, because what Trump's doing is playing identity politics. In this case, he's playing it versus Native Americans, is to come back heavy against Trump, say this isn't what we do in America. This isn't decent. This isn't the way that we conduct ourselves. And that appeal to America in that way of tolerance and of decency, that's the play which is not only against Trump. That's also a play that transcends any type of left-right there because you're appealing to a universal, which comes in. Now, that moment has come and gone, but there will be other moments because it'll be interesting, for example, when a Donald Trump comes out after an African-American, say like uh, one of his favorite foes is Maxine Waters, the congresswoman mm-hmm. from California. Do you call Trump out for that? In other words, you counter his dog whistle politics by rejecting dog whistle politics. And the reason why I think there's a space for that, let me just throw this into you, Trump. The, the one thing we throw this into you, Adam, uh, one of the things I haven't seen mentioned in the press recently, which shows how much... American politics has changed is we're no longer talking about the Tea Party. The Tea Party for listeners out there, you remember that movement that supposedly represented the popul you know, populist movement of disenfranchised but mainly white people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, around twenty ten, post financial crisis, post Obama, uh the Official thesis of the problems of America was that the uh, the excessive size and wastefulness of government was encouraging too many people who were irresponsible to treat America like a hammock in which they could uh, lay as risk-free. So we needed to cut government spending and cut the size of government to throw Americans back on their own resources to a healthy and uh, inspiring degree. Now, Trump sort of usurped that. Yes, by revealing that it was actually they just hated the black guy in the White House. Yeah. And, and by defeating the Tea Party candidate, Ted Cruz, along the way, mm-hmm. right? Now, what you've got now is is that now Donald Trump takes on the Tea Party mantle, and we now know it represents not, quote, populism, but a largely white populism. A kind of racial and cultural yeah. reactionary yeah. Uh, uh, anger. Yeah. So the real movements that go beyond identity politics, the dynamic movements, and I say this on the, one year, the week of the one-year anniversary of the Parkland shooting, mm-hmm. are those movements that respond to certain issues, such as gun violence, which say this isn't a color issue, this isn't a gender issue, this is an American issue. And that's where I think the real opportunity is, albeit one where we've got a crowded field of Democrats, and I have no clue which one of them are going to seize that opportunity first. Which takes us back, uh, uh, as as we draw close to an end, to what you raised at the beginning, which is this generational difference. Now, part of that argument that there's a generation gap in play here is about the literal physical age of some of the candidates like Joe Biden because he's both a centrist and super old like pushing 80 is the most extreme manifestation of this uh, I, I think um, because you just would very reasonably say look if we want to uh, if we want to put someone in office for potentially two four year terms your time has passed, Joe, move on. But also, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, although he came second last time and that puts him in a very strong position, he's also very old. I mean, like Elizabeth Warren, in normal circumstances, would be considered the old candidate in this race because she's in her, like, the second half of her 60s. Uh, but she's a spring chicken by comparison to at least a couple of the others. So that maybe it's helpful to her, but that doesn't get registered. So partly it's about the idea that some of these candidates, I think, would be in a much stronger position if they weren't just so old. But 
partly it's that people are making a calculation about movement on some of these issues. It's that when it comes to issues of progressive policy versus centrism, when it comes to how racial politics and uh, gender politics should factor into um, the internal politics of the Democratic Party and also what the Democratic Party wants to do and say uh, in, in terms of the, the wider politics of, of the nation, there, are, there is a strong sense that the, the younger generation just feel differently about a lot of these issues. They're unencumbered by some of the wars of the Democratic Party and America in the past. They want things that push the envelope further in terms of civil rights, in terms of racial identity, in terms of women's rights, in terms of progressive policy. And they believe that this can be accomplished. Uh, whereas there are others who, either because they are literally themselves still the same people who were opposing this for uh, 20 or 30 years, or because they have been persuaded by those uh, who, who think this is um, this is electorally dangerous, at least for now, that maybe one day this is going to be saleable to the electorate. But you've got to be more moderate. You've got to be you've got to be um, more restrained now uh, that they that they can be personally electorally successful, but also benefit the Democratic Party by keeping it keeping it back. And that kind of that sense that there's a generational change coming but it's the timing at which it tips over from being a strong feeling in the democratic base to being something that can win elections and get legislation passed. That, that calculation is looming large right here. I think so. I mean, I think I said a couple moments ago that if America does go down the path of embracing the same type of destructive politics we've seen in the White House in the last few years, I do think it's a downward slide, uh, just a personal point of view. But I think that doesn't mean it's there yet. And what's happened... That, Perhaps perversely because of Trump, there's an energy in America right now, not necessarily a positive energy. Quite often, it's been a destructive energy, and you can see that at Trump's rallies. But on the other hand, there is that energy which isn't necessarily destructive, but is looking for something different, is looking for something as an alternative to where America's going. We saw it the day after Trump's inauguration, two years ago with the Women's March. We saw it in some of the, around the midterm elections last November. I think if if Democrats play this as a conventional election, you'll dampen down that energy. You'll, you know, if you get into just the standard formats and the standard rituals of going caucus primary, et cetera, and then I think you're on a losing slope. Whereas I think the candidate and the team that keeps that energy going, and not necessarily for themselves, because I'm going to say one thing that's very controversial. I don't think I don't know if Cory Booker meant it, and it may have just been a line to garner attention. But it struck me that Cory Booker, when he launched, said, look, I'm not going to say something negative personally about another candidate in this. If that holds true, if this is not a personality contest in terms of trying to cut each other up, which is really what the Republicans were in 2016, there was an almost absence of issues in that. If you actually see Democrats engaging with each other over issues and engaging over platforms, that's where I think the energy will come from. What I don't know, and this is the wild card, is I don't know if the American media is ready for that type of thing. The American media in 2016 got sucked into the Trump spectacle, got absolutely sucked, gave him free airtime for this, mm -hmm. where issues were almost absent not only from the primaries but from the general election. Are the media ready for a candidacy which isn't just simply the Royal Rumble to return to where we started, mm -hmm. but is actually one where everybody's actually shaking hands and having a discussion? That's a question that I... 
that, well, keep, that keeps troubling me. I think you have a more optimistic uh, visualization of how the democratic primaries are going to be conducted than I do, if, if, if that's how you see it. Uh, but before we wrap up, I just want to say a couple of things mm. uh, that, you know, call, call, them, call them gripes and complaints, if you will. Mm. First of all, I promised that we were going to give a shooing to Howard Schultz. Uh, <laughs> I want to take a couple of minutes to do that, because this is, uh, for anyone who hasn't been following it closely, uh, the owner, founder of the Starbucks coffee chain, who apparently uh, has uh, hired political consultants and done a bunch of polling, and it has told him that America has a deep appetite for someone who will shake up the two-party system. He has no com- he's been told that he will lose a Democratic primary. So rather, even though the, the um, voters to whom he primarily intends to appeal would be Democratic voters, so he has been floating the possibility of running as an independent and using the billions of dollars that he has uh, to do that. I think uh, someone described the reaction to this after he first floated the idea as being a bit like in 28 Days Later when the like fast-moving, flesh-eating zombies just descend uh, upon someone and rend them limb from limb. You know, the absolute fury uh, that Democrats reacted to this uh, was, was notable, but also understandable because just the idea that at this time when one when one is confronted with just an absolutely awful president who the democratic party is united in its desire to move heaven and earth to expel that some billionaire who would just come along apparently without having done his homework in any meaningful way on policy issues spout some bromides about like the uh, the importance of you know abstract division without any real analysis of like what, what the division's about or how you would fix it needs to go away and, 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 and use his billions of dollars to circumvent the political process to be a spoiler in effect. It's just so maddening and in many ways encapsulates what's so unhealthy about the role of wealthy people in American politics. Uh, a plague on every house and every coffee shop that you are ever involved in, Mr. Schultz, I think would be a fair response to that. But secondly, uh, to, to close us out, I guess I just want to note that one of the things that I think is really interesting about this primary contest is that with so many different candidates, with all those different issues around identity and uh, uh, policy alignment and um, calculations about first the primary and then the general election in play, uh, this is going to be a fascinating tryout for a whole bunch of different ideas. And I have heard very plausible maybes uh, about how multiple candidates could potentially find their way to this this nomination. So my main feeling about it as someone who is not a Democratic Party activist, but who's like a person who works in a political mm-hmm. science department and is very interested in, in American politics, is that like anyone who tells you that they know for absolute certain, like that there is one true way to win this nomination or one true person who's going to win it and that everybody else is an idiot is uh, selling snake oil. There are there are multiple perfectly plausible hypotheses on the table as to how this is going to pan out. Um, and I am going to be fascinated to see how it actually plays out. You know, there are certainly some candidates who I would prefer to do well than others, but I could not tell you, like, in the same way as last time around, I felt with 99.99% certainty that Hillary Clinton was going to win that nomination. And those who said otherwise, I thought, were just kidding themselves this time around i think um i think there are there are lots of perfectly plausible narratives on the table so uh, those who don't necessarily have an activist stake in this game uh, I, I would advise them to appreciate it as an analyst as much as to uh, um jump on some tendentious propositions and say this is definitely going to happen because you'll almost certainly be proven wrong in these some regards just a couple of footnotes on top of that and i fully agree that 
anybody who predicts how this is going is a bookie sucker. The first is the issue that we haven't mentioned, but I think will be in play here quite a lot, of course, will be immigration. And there, I think, of course, with Trump opening up the space with his approach of zero tolerance and the mythical wall, it will be interesting to see how candidates play on this and whether they do it as in terms of a fundamental issue in terms of uh, certain red lines that they draw or certain lines that they draw regarding actually or whether they're more pragmatic in the approach to immigration and border security. Yeah, because I mean, the reason we haven't mentioned it that much, I guess, is because Democrats have tended to avoid having arguments amongst themselves about it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But to survive a general election against Donald Trump, people are definitely going to have to say something about immigration. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see if someone decides that, you know, okay, if the threat is we get portrayed as the, as the, the candidates for open borders, I'm going to preemptively within the primary like make it clear that I'm not that and then like dare implicitly the, the other candidates to join me or, or, or not. And again, here, watch Nancy Pelosi, watch the House, because I think a candidate follows what Pelosi does in terms of the pragmatic approach to border security. The second issue, which we haven't mentioned, which we may not mention, I think, as much as we haven't talked about foreign policy at all. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Tulsi Gabbard here, just because Tulsi is the one candidate who has made the greatest achievement of embracing the Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad and the damage he's wreaked on that yes, country. Yes, I, I salute her strength, her courage, her indefatigability, as George Galloway might say. I said, a, um, <laughs> and I think Tulsi might make a fine successor to Assad in Syria. I don't think she'll be president of the United States, in part because I don't think foreign policy issues are actually going to play. Despite all that we could talk about in terms of whether Trump's withdrawing troops from Syria, from Afghanistan, bashing NATO, even the Russia issue, uh, that doesn't really appear to be, uh, I think, it's going to be domestic issues. I think it's going to be domestic issues that are going to drive these primaries and indeed arguably the general election. Yeah, because the things that people don't like about Trump's foreign policy are like complicated from a party political perspective. Like Many Democrats actually quite like the broad headline of Trump's notion of not getting involved in like overseas conflicts, etc. But even the people who kind of think that, <laughs> to put it mildly, would not always subscribe to his way of going about it. Okay, I think we've set the world to rights. I do not doubt we're going to be coming back to this theme a considerable number of times before we get to the end of a, before we get to the end of uh, this electoral cycle. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Uh, that's a, an excellent way to keep up with the new editions as they get launched. Leave us a rating or a comment on there. That's very helpful for us to get us uh, appearing uh, much more visibly within those apps for other people who might discover the pod to find us, helps others discover it. And maybe you can even make a personal recommendation for us on social media if you've enjoyed this show tell people that you've enjoyed it and uh spread the spread the enjoyable experience to those you uh, you, you care about and whose intellectual development you want to foster um you can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash poll worldview, um, where you can find links to the show, or sometimes to other articles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, our participant today, uh, other than myself, has been Scott Lucas. Where can people find you online when they're desperate for a, an installment of your wisdom between episodes of Political Worldview? When Adam Quinn and Political Worldview aren't enough, I am at Political Worldview's partner site, EA Worldview, eaworldview.com. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA. 
Uh, I am Adam Quinn, uh, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, if you want to uh, put a number on it. There's a picture of me standing in front of the American Capitol building, which will help you narrow it down. You can follow me there where I share an awful lot of things. I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, but I don't use Twitter very much because it's for bots and trolls. So, uh, and uh, face, face, yes, and Scott, uh, who uh, enjoys interacting with both of those things uh, for large portions of his day. I am um, uh, more likely to be found on Facebook, though, so follow me there. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Thank you very much to the Pulses Good Ideas Fund, as always, for their support. We really appreciate that. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Keep fighting the good fight. 